Hello and welcome to the 34th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Monday the 16th of December 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This episode we discuss Chapter 9, Republican Democracy, where we deal with the concept of communist universal military training, self-government of the localities and cybernetics. If you would like to help keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang gang from only $5 a month or $1 an episode. You get access to the special patron-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the reading group series and other cool stuff too. If you don't have any spare dough, I'm always looking for people to help me with editing or producing the show. So hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if you're interested. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. Okay, to the discussion. Let's dive straight into it. And we're in chapter nine, boss level, Republican democracy. There are 14 points kind of in the book on strategy. We dealt with the first three last week and I'm just going to give the gist of those and then we're going to head on to the fourth one. Okay, so the first one is that there is no way forward from capitalism other than the self-emancipation of the working class. Two, the working class here means the whole social class dependent on the wage fund. And three, this means that the working class collectively decides how the means of production are used. Okay, so the working class has to do it itself. We define the working class as everybody who's dependent on the wage fund and the self-emancipation of the working class will mean they collectively decide how the means of production are used. We are all concurrent with these points. We all agree. Okay, let's head on to four. The self-emancipation of the working class therefore means in the first place the struggle for the working class to take political power. The only form to which the working class can take political power and lay collective hands on the means of production is the democratic republic. This does not mean rule of law, parliamentary constitutionalism, to which it is, in fact, opposed. It means a regime in which, in addition to the political liberties partially provided by rule of law, constitutionalism, freedom of speech, assembly, association, movement, etc., and an extension of these liberties, all public officials are elected and recallable. There is universal military training and service and the right to bear arms and political rights in the armed forces, generalized trial by jury, freedom of information, and so on. So what do people think about these? Universal military training and service, right? That's going to be a tough sell because the rest of this sounds like pretty liberatory. For example, if I was like trying to convince like a group of anarchists that like, hey, I'm not one of the bad Marxists, like let's work together. And I say all these points are going to be like, yeah, I can get down with that. I can get down with the idea of like republicanism as like a, a fundamental questioning of the of authority, you know, through democratic means and a fundamental accountability. Anarchists are into those things. But then when I get to, oh, and also universal military training and service, like, and this isn't just at anarchists too, like thinking about like your average worker, average worker who isn't uh, already politicized. <clears throat> You know, it could work maybe on some reactionary people rhetorically in that, like, oh, yeah, like, I love this troops. That's, that's cool. 
But beyond that, you know, maybe somebody who isn't like totally in love with the military, the idea of compulsory service is probably going to make them kind of nauseous. So my modification to that is twofold. Like you have to elaborate that the context of universal military training and service is in the context specifically of a civil war. That's kind of the bit that's left out here. Like to where in order to survive, like everybody would have to chip in. But the kind of uh, other thing I would add to that maybe is like universal military service and training, like maybe like basic boot camp, like you know how to fire a gun. But beyond that, like what you can actually do, like if you want to get into medicine or if you want to become an engineer, like you have other options other than just being like, you know, quote unquote, like a grunt. Huh. I think the whole thing about republicanism here, and maybe it sounds like we know different anarchists because a lot of anarchists that I know would read all this stuff and say, hmm, democratic republic, huh? Political power, huh? And then, you know, talking about, oh, of course, universal military service. Like, this all comes down to, do you think it's possible, like, get rid of the state fairly quickly? And then if not, you know, and uh, some anarchists and even some Marxists will depart from us there, right? But let, let's let's say that, okay, we don't really think that the state just, we're going to get rid of it. You know, that, and that was like a, that's the fundamental Marxist point against Bakunin and anarchism and whatever. If we are going to have some kind of, you know, intermediate form of state power, what do you do about the special body of armed men problem? And the only real solution is, is to purposely disrupt the division of labor that you get in a professional army. That's it. Like, well, I don't see it really another solution. This isn't just in terms of a civil war. This is in terms of, you know, as long as the state exists, we can't let it turn into a professionalized army. Yeah, yeah. I guess what, it, what I'm saying is not so much a logical critique of McNair, but more of like a rhetorical like reframing to like as a, as a way of selling it. And I think obviously not everybody's going to like buy into this. I, I just accept that, but we're trying to build a majority and this is a part of our minimum program. I think this is about principle. Got to kill the anarchists in your head a little bit. This might be true regardless of its rhetorical utility. I think in terms of rhetorical utility, because I also think in terms of like trying to achieve like a, a majority, but I get your point. I think this is, this is quite a, a shocking thing for, leftists i think normal leftists i'm not talking about say most of the more radicalized ones and even a lot of the radicalized ones this idea of military training and even bearing arms it feels really quite <laughs> boss level it's obviously taking dealing with this logical problem of the armed body of of men but it still feels like Let's imagine, say, in the UK or America today, maybe America is different, but like most yeah. leftists in America are anti-gun. So, yeah, the thing is, even in a country that has a right to bear arms in the Bill of Rights, the entire left is, or most of the mainstream left, this is changing a tiny, teensy little bit now, but most of the mainstream left, yes, the most anti-gun section of society. Social democracy, as it's like kind of building up, its strength in the U.S. has consistently proven itself to be, to line up with, like, liberalism, you know, the liberals of uh, America, de uh, Democrats, uh, on anti-gun stances. I think among the more radicalized left, it's not as common as it would as it would be in, like, Europe or other, you know, other... I think in Europe it's very anti-gun. I think that's it's very anti-gun. That's what Sophie's, I think, saying. Is that yeah. Sorry, like, okay, sorry. Yeah. There's a contrarian streak to our leftists to try to 
defend, you know, what in our discourse is, you know, conservative talking points, but do it in a Marxist way. And this is one of those times that that makes a lot of sense. With the Rainbow Coalition, we have like a tradition of like radical communists or communist adjacent groups using guns in a very politicized way. I don't, I don't know, you know, if Europe has anything that's adjacent, maybe, maybe like the Red Brigades. I don't know much about that. Uh, but. Yeah, I mean, they, <laughs> they were a little more like, you know, outwardly, like inherently, like a lumpen manifestation more than like the Panther Party, Black Panther Party, which had, of course, you know, a whole theory of lumpen and you know, trying tried to integrate with mm-hmm. them, but you know, had a sort of separate revolutionary consciousness in, in a way that. It's a bit more developed, possibly. But, but but the point being, you know, the American revolutionary left has like a a history with guns, whereas, you know, at one point I got into a debate with a couple, someone from Europe, someone from, I guess, Oceania, and like they treated me like I was insane because I was pro-gun, basically. Like I was some hillbilly, and I'm like a, a, a psychotic hillbilly. And those people are comfortable with cops holding the guns. Are you a psychotic hillbilly? I mean, yes, but that's besides the point. Okay, okay. Wow. <laughs> yes, and. Yes, and. How could you call yourself a revolutionary if you allow only the state to be armed? Like, that doesn't, that is fundamentally contradictory and not in a Hegelian way. Like, you can't square that circle. Right, because it, even if you say, oh, but we'll, we'll take over the state by political means, then the cops are going to be under your command. And you're going to have to own that, right? What are you going to do about that? Right. I mean, all these left cons who look down at, at American working class people as like a bunch of like hillbillies and shit, like they, in essence, no matter how left con they are, no matter how much they like some Lenin or Bordega or wh- communization or whatever the fuck they're into, they are social democrats in practice. That, that's the best you can hope for is is like a socialist party that can manage a capitalist state because if you can't challenge the capitalist state as such with your own firearms then you can only manage the people who are armed and that means you maintain the capitalist state you maintain some form of alienated state power what 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 about then the dominant thing in in the left in america and probably globally at the moment is uh-huh. you know the gandhi approach why does mcnair so go so much in for for weapons why not this uh lie down gandhi approach it is an option it is an option you know there is some strand of like pacifist strategy that could be adapted in a sort of like it's i think i think it's mainly because we've like hit and maybe this is wrong maybe i'm wrong about this but a lot a lot of people feel like we've hit the limits of what such strategy can achieve a lot of that relies on spectacle or blockade or some kind of like soft power, all of which in society, there's a pretty good like sort of social churn mechanism or whatever that's kind of rolls its eyes at it. I mean, even when, you know, people's bodies are on the line, as it is fashionable to say, I don't know what it is, but this currency has been devalued in a way that's hard to articulate. It seems like sometimes that when, you know, you do see like autonomous action that's pacified or something the people are look just sort of looking for the money behind it but maybe maybe that's a bit what cynical. Do you mean? well uh, like is, is it funded by a democratic front group in the u.s in particular yeah or like an ngo that's connected to the democratic party 
I mean, probably a good example of why people think this is something like Extinction Rebellion, where, you know, they, they've been ha- staging relatively, you know, big civil disobedience actions, but there's some kind of weird nonprofit management thing going on that has like a significant state loyalist streak. It's incredibly middle class. Right. It's incredibly, there are, there are no, you know, that kind of, you know, not in a Marxist sense, working class, but like this, you know, verifiable looking working class English people on it. They're yeah, unbelievable. And- it's unbelievably white, middle class. It's hippie. It's quite the same kind of vibe as a lot of the stuff that was in Occupy movement. A really good friend of mine, my, my partner's, she's a really good artist and she got involved with it. <laughs> this is an interesting story. She got involved with it, like, and she's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but she is the art director now, I think, for Extinction Rebellion in London or something like Shit. this. You can look it on the CV. I might have that wrong, but I think that's true. But when she was got involved one of the, with one of the top people, the woman said to her, like, she said, oh, so you're like, you're like my assistant. I've never had an assistant before. This is going to be cool. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> my friend was, Yikes. was like, yeah, she said, like, after, she's saying this, and she's like, what the fuck? You know, like, that's such a, that is such a middle-class thing to have said, isn't it? Yeah, I'm it's so excited. Like, I get to be a manager. I yeah. get to manage you. Yeah. So um, it just needs to, it needs to become proletarian as opposed to managerial class. And so I guess maybe the biggest thing I have an objection to is in the first sentence, the clause in the first place, you know, the self-emancipation of the working class therefore means in the first place, the struggle for the working class yeah. to take political power. Cause I do think the struggle for the working class to take political power is rather essential. And that's where I can't abandon, you know, Marx's political way of looking at things, even though things are so different. But I think in the first place, the working class needs to have some reliable, like way of projecting its social interests that is stable enough institutionally so that it can plausibly control forms of political power that it desperately does need to develop. How can we aim to take political power when we have no social power? It, yeah, it'll just get away from us the moment mm-hmm. there it, it gets thrown into the party system or the state system or, you know, the the political logic will take over. I mean, even to have the Democratic Republican, you know, party structure that McNair thinks we need to have before we take power, you need a strong social base before that. And I think this is this again points to McNair's biggest blind spot, in my opinion, his lack of analysis on the social question, if you will. In a lot of ways, he's almost too Republican in like the uh, revolutionary bourgeois sense. And I'm not to, that's not to say that criticized McNair for being like a bourgeois or something like that, but rather like it's just not, it's not, he's not filling in the gaps in the social theory. Yeah, I would agree with that. That was the thing that stood out to me as well was like, it seems strange to put the political first when, yeah, we're just in such a weak position that we couldn't possibly sustain that. If we were to have a some kind of uh, political organization, it would absolutely be taken over by these kinds of people that we're talking about from XR, right? Like mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. was, it would 100% become a, a petty bourgeois managerial <clears throat> phenomenon because we don't have 
social power. This kind of gets at like the opposite side of the coin, right? Where you get to like anti-politics and they're focused on the social and kind of a band. They just flip McNair on its head, basically. They abandon the political and focus on the social. But what ends up happening when there's a social base with no political objectives or aims or institutional aims is that it gets swooped up by these managerial people very often. So you need like a, a political stance that is independent, that like McNair's talking about from this managerial class that is uh, wanting to like attack the state, but then you also need a social base for that to happen. It, it's really like anti-Pole and, and McNair are both wrong. They, and like the person who's correct is Marx, you know? Right. Yeah, although I, w- I would say that that fits maybe the, the communizer mode a little better. And anti-politics, at its best, is some kind of attempt to wrestle with the, the necessity of attacking political sphere and bringing a disruption in the political sphere. And at its worst, it's just the most so- like sophisticated form of political cheerleading. Anti-politics yeah. in a masochistic institution like politics, you know, is like... It loves the people that can, like, fuck with the whole scene and dominate. And that's how politics kind of is anyway. Like, it, yeah. you know, like, normally. Well, I, like, I, w- I was, you know, kind of surprised to see, like, this uh, this stunt that the, the Republicans pulled with the, you know, impeachment proceedings. With the uh, walkout? This week. Yeah. Well, the, the barge in more than the walkout, right? Just, like, occupying the, the space. Right? <laughs> politicians and it's like your body's on the line yeah like i was seeing all these people doing this and i was like man like i haven't heard of like oh like a, a left party in the core doing something like that in forever like hmm. forever the respect for parliamentary proceedings is so strong the the willingness to disrupt politi- the political system is so weak because uh, like you know you can go back to like the 60s or the 40s or 50s or whatever and there's examples of like, you know, socialists barging into parliament and causing a scene and this kind of stuff. But like, it's just kind of unthinkable at this point in time uh, that, that that would happen. And like, honestly, it's kind of normal to have big, spectacular political activity that's disruptive like that. That's a little more threatening. Like it's it's I think part and parcel of people being totally alienated that that kind of stuff that people don't even do that kind of shit anymore. People used to get like roll their eyes and be cynical about that sort of thing. And similar way that I was talking about the way people look at what appears to be autonomous social activity as kind of like, I don't know, it's a devalued currency. You know, yeah, there were times when, oh, here comes the socialists and communists. Oh, they're going to be incredibly disrespectful and antagonistic within bourgeois institutions. Again, yawn, eye roll. We all know they're just, you know, still somehow bought into this system. You know, like there, w- this critique could still happen, even if people were more spectacularly antagonistic. But in the absence of that, even that historically precedented spectacular antagonism, there's just no plausible way of thinking that there's some kind of real revolutionary force in society impinging on left politics right now. But I think well, that's I like think- the steel man version of a- anti-pol, and I have like a lot of respect for anti-politics, just to be clear. But like, I think. The better version of it is like pushing leftists to not be like respectful parliamentary procedure and to be more like fuck you like this is like this is all wrong and you all suck and just to let like let them know you know like I I, I totally vibe on that kind of stuff. 
I don't think McNair completely dismisses the social question. I just think it's like a, a, a weak point in, in that theory. And I feel like it's vice versa for some anti-poll. Well, I think what we should do is we should like barge on to like, say, Question Time on BBC. We should like do a shit up on top of the, in front of the camera and then smear it on the <laughs> on all the panelists. That's what we should be starting. Yeah, I've, I've sometimes talking, I've sometimes said that we need a, uh, to divert the energy of Eric Andre into parliamentary bodies. Like, <laughs> that's where all that, you know, millennial nihilism should go. Did anybody say anything on political rights and the armed forces? No. This is like really important, right? So, I mean, when I, when I personally think about universal training and service in the military, I can appreciate the logical need for it, but it is uh, quite an intimidating prospect to me because like historically, in, in, or my, my personal history of my life, I really haven't done very well with large hierarchical organizations and they tend to leave me with a lot of psychological trauma. So I'm very much of mixed of a, of a split sort of mind on this because I have a lot of really bad experiences that I'm sure would be 10 times worse in the military. But at the same time, I absolutely understand the logic behind having universal service and training. And it really comes down to like, my degree of trust in this kind of proposal really comes down to like, how legitimate are these political rights gonna be? Because yeah. if no, the really. political rights are empty, or if say, a military with officers elected by jury is, is strategically ineffective and expedient says, well, forget the rights, then that's a really dire situation. And it, it's mm -hmm. going to lead to recreating a state. Yeah, the forms of military authority. There are many states like this, no? Forms of military authority are political authority, like if you're not careful. So that's the thing about republicanism in the reactionary critique, you know, in the Western tradition of the, you know, ancient democratic republics, uh, you know, what, what they, people call democratic republics in the Western tradition being, you know, Sparta and Athens. But yeah, the reactionary critique is like, this stuff is just, it's, it's going to be like, this is the long road to autocracy. You're better off just, you know, picking a king or something you think you're going to get universal liberty. So this is a quite a formidable critique. I say it's reactionary just to name where it's normally coming from. You know, the liberal enlightenment people, they were trying to do some kind of middle ground between all out democratic republic. And that's where you get this rule of law, constitutionalism stuff. Lexi, I can't believe you said pick your king. It's so sexist. What's going on here? <laughs> well, could of course be a female king, a woman king, like in Poland. A female um, king? A female king. The other, the other sort of thing I wanted to address is like the examples of republics or of parliamentary democracies, constitutional monarchies in the world that actually have universal training and service today. Mm. And like probably the most conspicuous one that we can think of is Israel, right? But if you want to look at examples that are a little bit less terrifying you can look at something like norway you can look at something like yeah i mean norway is probably the least terrifying option right it feels like those institutions have decayed significantly under the influence of nato 
the fact that the majority of relevant military forces are actually professional militaries kind of has like undermined any of the principles behind that those institutions and it's kind of like a thing mm-hmm. people just have to suffer through and i guess like is isn't like switzerland another example of, of a country with like a lot of sort of democratic military uh, engagement that would at least go with their sort of you know direct democracy kind of approach i don't know like the only thing i seem i can really seem to take from this is that the best cases that we see in the world today are the ones where it's kind of like just a bother and something that's kind of resented by the population because they don't see any value in it. And the worst cases are like basically like the worst tendencies we see in American politics towards like military, like fascist thinking, but like that indoctrinated into the entire population by means of military service. I guess, you know, if it was in a more revolutionary context, I could, I could see those more positive cases having more meaning but um, it's hard to, to point to examples to say like, oh yeah, like universal service is creating a vibrant democracy in this country. There's just yeah. so many uh, surrounding factors. I used to work for Ericsson, their like Swedish company. So I knew a lot of like Swedish and Norwegian guys. I think fin- Finland did it as well. All those ones there up near Br- Russia, <laughs> you know, they were all shitting themselves so they'd be taken over by this Bolsheviks again, probably. But, um, like, they didn't have a negative experience of it, as far as I could tell, you know. So I think it does really matter about the, you know, the social structure of the thing. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I have more experience talking to people from, like, South Korea or Singapore. Those are rather different states than Sweden or Norway. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Derek brought this to my attention recently, but Singapore has an explicitly like Leninist sort of like political structure, but it's not like, you know, Marx themed, you know, it's like a social democratic tradition that adopted some like Leninist organizational norms explicitly. Like the best of both worlds. Oh yeah. (laughs) Real neo-Gaussian paradise. Oh boy. So there, there is like a very like Fabian kind of tone to a lot of the politics in Singapore, top-down technocratic rule, educating the populace for their own good biopower sort of stuff. But I can also absolutely understand like the logic in having universal military service in Singapore because it is a city-state. And uh, I guess it's just I've met people who've had very bad experiences with it. I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about the details because um, I just don't want to cause problems for anybody, but it's, it, it can be rough the way that the, the state can intrude in your life in those institutions. I do get McNair's logic for saying why rule of law, constitutionalism and parliamentary system, that kind of thing is opposed to the democratic Republic. But it's important that when you zoom out, these are oppositions within it's just not, this is not like that harsh of an opposition. It's a, it's a matter of institutional forms. Some of the forms of the democratic Republic are present in these parliamentary constitutional regimes in a, you know, perverted way. But, you know, you could see from the critique of those institutions, what might become of our democratic Republic. There's no like final form emerging from the sky that doesn't have the problems of existing institutions. 
there will there will be some different problems. There will be different incentive structures, but not all of them will be different. When I think part of to like what is making us kind of uh, uneasy between like the difference between rule of law or constitutionalism versus like democratic republicanism is that while what McNair is trying to articulate is Marxism, which is supposed to transcend the Enlightenment, fulfill it in a way that transcends the Enlightenment, republicanism as a as a philosophy explicitly comes from the Enlightenment, right? As do like freedom of speech mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all these things which are found in both quote unquote rule of law constitutionalism and democratic republicanism. So like I'm not in any way, shape or form anti-humanist, but there is a part of me that's like, Mm -hmm. how is, how can you ensure me a democratic Republic is not going to recapitulate problems that you're criticizing that parliamentary constitutionalism has. Right. I found like, you know, like a Marxist form of Republicanism is a solution to a lot of, kind of the problems that modern Marxism has as far as like, what's the next step? I still have a mild uneasiness about it, you know, because it, it just, I, I think Republicanism and I think like settler state, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, yeah. Kyle, how do you feel about reading number five? Absolutely. In particular, democratic Republicanism implies that what has to be decided centrally for effective common action should be decided centrally but that what does not have to be decided centrally should be decided locally or sectorally. Rail table times, for example. Self-government of the localities, not Bonapartist centralism, but equally not constitutional federalism, which hands the ultimate power to the lawyers and turns the rights of the units of the federation into a form of private property. The reason for points four and five is, in the first place, that the working class can only organize its cooperation through unity in action on the basis of accepting diversity of opinions, and, second, that there cannot be a common cooperative appropriation of the means of production where there is private ownership of information, of institutional powers, or of political careers. Without the principles of democratic republicanism, there is precisely private ownership by individuals or groups of information, of institutional powers, and of political careers. That is the meaning of the bureaucracies of the former socialist countries, of the trade unions, of the socialist and communist parties, and of the Trotskyist sects. Burn, burn, burn. Light. <laughs> Light in my lighter. It's fire. Burn, burn. Yeah. Yeah, I... I pretty much unqualifiedly agree with this. How does the kind of um, outline in the first part of part five line up with like the kind of principles of cyber sin or cybernetics in that like, you know, the center should only respond to localities if there's like pain signals? Yeah, absolutely. Those those things totally line up. Uh, it's just you get a little bit more of a detailed picture in like Stafford Beer's work of what this might look like. But fundamentally, the principles are the same. Yeah. How okay? So let's say like we have like a multi-party democratic republic. You know that's socialist, right? Let's say that one party is wants to focus on making everything more decentralized to the point where that kind of cybernetic economic organization wouldn't function well. You know, let's say like pie in the sky ideal. Like you have like a kind of center party that we're advocating here. You have a party that wants more centralization and a party that wants more decentralization. Sure. Right. What happens when one of those extremes wins out politically? 
mm-hmm. right? And they like fuck with the economic system to the point where it, it kind of doesn't function like it should. Like, how do you keep that from happening or remain democratic? Right. So I think that the answers are that you would get out of like Beard, at least to my understanding, aren't really that surprising. So for example, you would probably have a constitution that would guarantee this stuff, like that, that would guarantee some kind of fundamental operating principles, because that is a thing that beer refers to, or that people have applied beer refer to in like, well, how do we like maintain agreement on the way this system ought to operate? So for example, in beer system, like those kinds of questions are things that are like referred to as like system five concerns which are concerns about the entire, like principles that are guiding the entire polity. Generally speaking, uh, they're only to be addressed through engagement of the broadest possible number of, of members. You're not going to have a coup or a parliamentary maneuver that would be able to overturn those fundamental principles. So like when you first look at the the graph of the viable system model uh, and you see system five at the top, it looks like it's kind of like a separate thing controlling everything else. But when you actually read like how it's organized, uh, and this is, a, this is a point that came from Allende directly, I believe, was uh, that that has to be like the people. That has to be like the, the entire associated producers uh, that make decisions about fundamentally altering the principles of your, your system. Because otherwise, yeah, it's the, the, the autonomy of your basic units uh, is going to be kind of meaningless if the fundamental decisions are made by somebody that isn't them. Lexi and I have talked about having like a way of to do practical way to like conceptualize democratic republic is like you have like the House of Representatives being the upper house mm-hmm. and then something like, you know, the proper the Soviets or workers councils making up the lower house. But what mm-hmm. this is suggesting is that politically, as far as power structure, the upper house should be the councils. It should be like a Congress, right? It, like if, if, if you are going to make if you are going to make fundamental changes to your system, there has to be a kind of a, like to the best of your possible ability, have some kind of universal Congress. So you're saying now, say if I wanted to do like a no deal communist exit <laughs> call it come exit, right? Yeah. And I wanted to do some parliamentary shenanigans that I wouldn't be allowed to. Yeah, no, you wouldn't be able to like just you know maneuver. Are you taking away my rights? Yeah, you, you taking my rights away, Carl? Is that what you're saying? My parliamentary maneuver rights? Do come exit. <laughs> I guess. I guess this is where we really need to kill the anarchists in our head because I know some anarchists who would be really dumb enough and obstinate enough to where they'd be like, oh, I don't care if the whole thing falls apart. I want autonomy, you know? And so their idea is like, yeah, well, gonna, they, they would do that. They would do a com exit. I, I think as a, just a general rule for the podcast, we should stop saying things like kill the anarchist. In your head. I yeah. know, but even that is still kind of bad. We shouldn't be talking about killing people. I'm not, yeah. killing, I'm not, I'm not talking about killing anybody. I'm talking about Look, I, I used to be an anarchist. Okay, like I can I can say that. Tom, I I, I hear what you're saying, and we're, we're and every time we say overcome or transcend, or our Alfheben, what we really mean is kill. Got it? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm not a Maoist. I don't actually think that. 
Oh, no. Yeah, please. Anymore. Please go, Val. Um, <laughs> to your point, Sophie. Yeah, it absolutely is the case that, like, for beer, you cannot have meaningful autonomy without a broader system that will support that autonomy. And so, yeah, if you if you are just like striking off, like in terms of like radical independence destroying all the conditions around you in the in the name of of like true liberty that's like without actually like having some systems thinking that's going to lead to disaster from from beer's point of view okay selfie number six hit it since the only form in which the working class can actually take power is the democratic republic it is only when this idea wins a majority in the society that the democratic republic can be achieved. Without clear majority support, a democratic republic is self-evidently impossible. All ideas of an enlightened minority conning the working class into taking power, whether through coalitions, through the mass strike, or more generally, through one or another sort of frontist arrangement of the minority party cog driving the bigger wheel, front, comma, Soviet, etc., has to be rejected. This kind of uh, makes me think of that article we, we kind of mentioned a little bit last time about how to measure a majority. Again, this is, you know, why anti-politicos will often argue for, you know, bourgeois political science is like shitty and everything. But these, I, what other metrics do we have for measuring public opinion? The, the majoritarianism in this is, you know, I think very important and it's trying to recover something from the old social democratic tradition that was lost with the the Leninist turn ultimately, but all the same. Uh, and Lenin is quite interesting on this in his writings that, you know, how to gauge the real democratic will of people when the, the institutions are so distorting. Good question. Yeah. I mean, this just makes you think about what happened with the Alberta NDP here when they got a majority in parliament because of vote splitting on the right. Like they had a clear majority government for the first time ever and yet they did not feel that they had actual majority support and so abandoned their program and just became like <laughs> they, they they folded completely and became like functionally tools of of, of the capitalist class yeah like it, it does really speak to this problem of like even if you have a majority in parliament a clear majority in parliament, that's not necessarily going to be enough. So how do you measure what clear majority support is becomes a very significant strategic question as well as to, uh, as one of like sort of ideal political moral philosophy. Because yeah, if you, if you don't think people are actually going to come out and support you when you're you just got into government, you're getting all kinds of death threats, the media is, is attacking you, then you're probably going to fold strategically. Right. So like we, we kind of what you're talking about is a situation of like a, what, what potentially might have been like a false negative, right? Like, you know, perhaps like you do have support and you should go through with the damn thing. But then, you know, if you act on that when it's a false positive, the results could be disastrous, possibly even more so than acting on a false negative. Yeah, and this is the thing that really messes me up because, like, 
the Alberta NDP did not block with any other party to get into government. They had a political program that was quite antagonistic to the existing status quo. They still got a majority in parliament. And yet that seems to check out like a lot of McNair's sort of political principles. I guess the only thing is that they're their political program wasn't radical enough in the sense that like it, it wouldn't fit the minimum program that McNair is laying out here. It was still like well within the bounds of capitalism. So like maybe if you had a, a more radical program, you could get elected and that would give you a mandate. But it's, it's really concerning to me that you have these, these kind of cases where like, okay, we're not blocking with the rest of the parties. Like we're only going to get elected when we have real majority support and then you get into power and it's still like, this isn't good enough to actually implement a radical program. If I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is like the kind of concerns about having the electoral mandate not being enough that McNair outlined in that article is actually incorrect. Even if you have the electoral mandate, you don't have a mandate. Well, but Kyle, if I'm reading it correctly, you think that maybe the, the party you're talking about in Alberta did have a mandate and that the, the death threats and the, the media wasn't representative of the general will. Yeah, I, I think that there was there was there was there was a kind of uncertain degree of popular support. Like how much was this a protest vote? How much was this discussed at the the, you know, however many decades of of previous conservative rule. It was really hard to say. And yet strategically, well, a lot of what they did lined up with what McMahon proposes in this book, right? Mm. In terms of pursuing an independent course and not getting into power until you actually have popular support. It's just, that didn't really seem to be enough to actually act in the way that McNair uh, advocates. So yeah, that's, that's what really like kind of messes with my head. Like McNair's strategy doesn't necessarily seem to lead to the kind of majority support that you would want to actually act on the sort of things he's proposing. To, to elaborate, perhaps the issue is, comes back to like the social issue, right? Like, yeah, if you focus yeah. only on politics, what will end up happening is that you'll meet the conditions to quote unquote take power, right? You won't form yeah. a government with the with the right wing loyalist party or anything like that, and then you'll just end up being an independent party alone, forming the government, not able to really uh, smash this this bourgeois state machinery or whatever, like because you right. don't have the social base. So you don't like, have you have no way of checking the social base because you're so, so like, political. Reasoning from sort of like the framework that McNair is working in, like I'm trying to think about like what the options could have been. Like the options could have been throw the election somehow. Like just say like, no, even though we have enough votes to form a majority in parliament, we're not going to take power. Or the options could have been to like split more definitely with the right in that party. So as to avoid taking power and uh, establish like a clearer oppositional line. So mm-hmm. as to like use that as a litmus test to see if the populace really supported what you were doing. That's a good idea actually. Cause if you're so big to where you could form a government on your own, but you don't, you're not sure if you have the social base to take power, 
you just purge even more so the right wing from the party. That I mean that I mean that's a I mean may, maybe going along with our rhetorical thing today, purge is a one way to put it. I get you know well it's a split. I, it's a it's split. A split. Right. Yeah. 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 Either way, there's some incursion on standard political logic. You know, yeah. like that's it's all anathema to regular political thinking. And you know, practical political thinking in most cases if you're if what you're trying to do is not you know develop communist revolution you know what i mean like then there's a standard logic that you have to kind of deviate from and how to you know deviate from that in the right way in these circumstances is by no means really like clear right absolutely yeah it's it's just interesting like when you run into a case like this where you're taking power for the first time against a conservative ruling block, like like a sort of Gramscian hegemonic block that had been in power for like, I don't know, half a century. And your line is oppositional to what their what business as usual is. How do you know it's it's not oppositional enough? Mm. Right? Is it is it just like, no, we have to say socialism now? It, like is that is that where you you draw the line? Is this the party I was in is willing to just take power of the state as it exists and in, in essence manage capitalism? I think that it would answer my question of like, no, we're not ready to, we don't have popular mandate to actually do like a communist revolution at that point. Right. Yeah. That, so, that, that's, that seems logical. Yeah. And so I think also what you suggested, like splitting with the right of the party at that point, you would sabotage the right wanting to manage capitalism, the right socialism, but that, the, the other implication of that, though, is that for the kind of normie perspective of, of politics, people might get mad at you for that. Like not even other socialists, just like the general population might get mad at you for that because they don't want to deal with conservatism anymore. And that and a power yeah. vacuum might mean that you get a conservative government again. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, because because you would expect the right to block with one of the wings of the conservative side. Right maybe it would still overall be like a net gain in that, like instead of just conservative pure hegemony, like they're, they're checked by like forming a government with the right wing of socialism, but maybe that could totally backfire and set you back in some ways because then you just split in a conservative, you know, form a government again without any check. And, and so in the, in like the popular imagination, you, you kind of sabotaged yourself. Yeah. Even I think that would to be do. a likely outcome. You, you would probably be derided by like widely for splitting on the eve of taking power because it would just be seen as like idealist sectarianism. On this episode, you heard the team tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.